I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke 4. Luke 4. Starting in verse 38. This is our reading for this morning. And we're going to be talking about a kind of a serious subject. Not to say that all the other subjects weren't serious. But this one's going to hit home to many of us. We're going to see how the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes into the life of his, one of his disciples in the midst of affliction of his mother-in-law. And that through this experience would cause all sorts of people to come seeking this type of deliverance from affliction. So let's read this together. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. If you are able, pay reverence to the word of God. Luke 4, starting in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also crying out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You all may be seated. So we're continuing on in the gospel according to Luke. Last week, Pastor Blake gave a wonderful, gave to us the word of God, that God is an authority, that his word is the authority, that it goes forward with power and with might. We got to see in the midst of the synagogue, him delivering this proclamation of who he is in the midst of the people. And that while, it were, uh, while he was preaching and teaching, a demon from within them just rose up, revealed itself. The Lord rebuked it, and the person was redeemed from it. That was in the midst of a public place, a synagogue, no doubt. And Pastor Blake threw out some wonderful things to say regarding that serpent. That serpent line was stellar. How many churches seek to appeal to the serpents that are sitting in the room? That was good. Don't even know that they're sitting there. But Christ's word with authority revealed, revealed this demon that the Lord was able to take care of it. And so now here we are, after all of this stuff, after the synagogue situation and the demon situation, they make their way to Simon Peter's house, where his mother-in-law is sick. And then it says that they appealed to him on her behalf. On her behalf. She didn't say it. She didn't appeal. They did it on her behalf. And then the Lord rebuked the fever and it went away. And immediately she got up and began serving them. And then people heard about it. They heard about what had happened. So they're like, oh, if he's the one, they started bringing all of their sick, too. And they got healed. He laid their, his hands on them, and they were healed. 
And at the very end, Luke includes something actually quite interesting. He goes back to the demon possession portion. He says it again. Now, in the text, I want you to notice that these are two separate events. These are two separate events. Luke is a doctor. He knows what illness looks like, and he knows what demon possession looks like. These are two separate things. But Luke ends the section with the demon possession deliverance because of the reality that this simple, ter- this simple temporary relief from affliction and suffering is only just that. It is temporary. We all go to the end regardless. That seeking relief in the midst of this life just to be let go of affliction is temporary. But the ultimate end for that relief is the glory of God to your salvation. That Christ endured suffering, went through it, was glorified so that way you may have life. So out of the midst of this situation, all these people bring this sick, and Luke ends the portion with another demon possession being cast out to declare that he is the Christ. They knew that he was the Christ. Now, I find this fascinating because Luke showcases this word in such a way that the reality found in this portion of text is not simply that the demons knew that he was the Christ, but his disciples did too. Because why else would they appeal to Jesus over the sick? Or why else would people bring out their sick to this man? Jesus declares in the midst of the synagogue that he is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. That he is the fulfillment of this speaking. And then he showcases the authority of his word by demonstrating it. Word like that spreads. And so, this morning we're going to be diving into a portion of text where we're going to be talking about the reality of affliction and suffering in our lives. So Jesus begins his ministry by revealing the authority of the word of God, his word of who he is, both in fulfilling the word of God and the demonstration of his power by his word. Notice something. He didn't just simply say it. He just didn't say, say, he just didn't say it, this is it, and had no proof. He not only said it to the people in the synagogue, but also proved it by casting out the demon from among them. His word not only is the truth and the reality, but it's also the power of his authority. He not only spoke it, but demonstrated it right then, right there. But I also want you to notice something. His word declared was in the midst of a crowd. The beginning of his ministry, Luke showcases that after the temptation of Jesus, he was in a synagogue, declares that he's the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, the favor of the Lord to the people, demonstrates his authority by his word in the midst of a crowd. He lets them know. He declares his word. The people see, observe, and then they move. They go out from the place to give an attestament, a testimony of what they had witnessed, what they had heard, but also what they had witnessed. Jesus now reveals the truth of his authority in heaven and in earth. And he begins this revelation in the personal lives of his disciples. He goes from the synagogue, and now he's in the house of the disciples. He's in the house of Simon Peter specifically, and that his mother-in-law is sick. Did it say anything happened in the synagogue that there was any healings? No, a demon was cast out. 
But the first healing that Luke points us to is in the personal lives of the disciples because of one thing, two things rather. The disciples heard what Jesus said, saw what he did, that his authority was there by his word, and says, okay, if he's got authority over that, my mother-in-law is sick. Can you do something about that? I know that you can cast out demons, and I know that you're the Christ, that you are the heaven's son, that you are the one who comes to bring the kingdom of God. But can you do something about my sick mother-in-law? I mean, I saw what you did in the synagogue, but is there something that you can do with my mother-in-law? And Jesus reveals the reality of his authority and power amongst his disciples. For a very specific reason. Not only did they hear his word, but they saw his authority by his word, both in declaration and in demonstration. Their testimonies of his authoritative work in their lives will confirm the word of who he is. Faith in his word produces the revealing of his power in the lives of those who receive him by his word. Isn't that interesting? That the moment we receive, by faith, the gospel, power comes upon us. We are changed. We are cleansed. We are renewed. We are raised from death into life. By simply receiving first the word that he spoke. So the disciples in the midst of this situation heard what Jesus said, saw what he did in public, and was like, yeah. All right, if anybody can do this, if anybody can fix my mother-in-law, because she's probably going to die, it's going to be this one. It's going to be this guy. So they appeal to him on her behalf. Faith in his word produces the revealing of his power in the lives of those who receive him by his word. I want to take a moment to jump ahead in Luke. I want to talk about a, a, a situation in Luke 17, that helps to build on the reality of what we're seeing today. Starting in Luke uh, 17, starting in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the first appeal that they make in this situation looks at Jesus and says, increase our faith. And this is what Jesus says. If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus is making an point here. The apostles are appealing to him and saying, increase our faith. We want to have that faith. We want to have that Faith that's built up and strong and we can just do it all. We want to be able to say to the mountain, go into the river or go into the sea and it be done. And Christ gives them a truth. Oh, 
Only if you had a faith of a mustard seed. Now, the, the thing that's interesting about a mustard seed is twofold. One, it's very small, so it doesn't take much. But two, the potency of mustard and mustard seed comes when the seed is crushed. You crush that seed, it begins to spread. It grows. Its potency is... Everybody, anybody ever done pickles before? Ever jarred pickles? That potency is there. It's the crushing of that seed where its potency lies. It's a hard truth. And of course, the, the apostles are like, well, wait, wait a second. Now, you're saying you just want us to do these things. We want to have the power and might. I want to have our faith that's built up and strong oh, and big. And he's like, wait a second. Wait a second. Who is it that you're wanting the power for? Who is it that wants to be praised in this situation? Are you simply saying that you want to do this stuff and receive the glory yourself? That you just want to overcome all these obstacles and not endure anything just so that way your faith can just produce whatever you want? But his response is intriguing. He tells them that at the end of doing what was commanded, that they will say to them, say to the Lord, that we are unworthy servants. That's odd. Why is that? Let's continue on. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And, say, and lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So ten lepers come up to Jesus and are like, hey, I want some of that healing. We hear that you heal and we got leprosy. We want that. Can we have that? Have mercy on us. Deliver us from this affliction. Verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. He gave them a command... And they went, and they were cleansed because they received the word, and they believed it. They're like, all right, we'll go do that, whatever you say. And they were cleansed along the way. But this is not where the parable, this is not, the, this is not where the situation ends. Continuing on. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. So he started going, saw he was healed, and was like, so he didn't finish going to the priest. He turned back and say, and praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Now, the interesting thing about a Samaritan during that time that you may have heard, they were considered unclean Israelites. Samaritans are the side of Jewish people who intermarried in Babylon, who intermarried with those nations outside of them. So the Jewish people, who are pure blood, would look at them and call them unclean. Because their blood is unclean. That's terrible. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see what the Lord thinks about such an appeal. So they look at the Samaritans as unclean. They can't be fixed. They can't be fixed. Their blood's unclean. They can't be fixed. Then Jesus, continue on verse 17. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, 
rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now that term well there denotes wholeness. Do you notice that all the other lepers, they believed and they got their, their healing because they simply listened. But there was only one who turned back and was made whole. They were delivered from their affliction of leprosy. But this one Samaritan, who was considered unclean, realized something that the rest of them did not. That they, he did not deserve to be cleansed. So he gave praises to God for the simple fact that he was cleansed. And by that faith, he was made well. He was made well. This reality found in this text was this simple matter that the apostles were appealing to want the power divorced of the authority of God. They wanted the power to do and to be able to go and do regardless of to whom the praise goes to. They wanted something because they saw it and they're like, well, if you can do it, Rabbi, that means we can do it too. So we want that very thing. Faith is built up by the belief in the word and the work of Christ. What Jesus has said and done is what we need to hear. Not only do we need to receive what he says, but in that so much so, we need to know what he has done. Can anybody tell me the primary principle of the gospel, the three main things? 1 Corinthians 15, any Awanaka eyes in here? That Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised three days according to the scriptures. That he lived, he died, was raised. Do you notice that every single one of those things is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation, but they attest to what Christ has actually done. The word is power, but in the midst of his doing is where the authority comes from. So, in this story with the ten lepers, they received the power divorced of the realization of who they were. They're like, sweet, I'm done with my leprosy, I can do what I want now. But this one leper got cleansed, went back, praised God, and gave gratefulness to the reality that he did not deserve it. But now he's been made well. That is why Jesus in Luke 17 was saying, do you not see... That in the midst of doing all this stuff, you're going to return to me and say, I was an unworthy servant. To even participate. Not that I deserved it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It is by the trust in his word that the miraculous work of Christ produces steadfast faith in Christ. Which brings us to our main theme this morning. The main reality being found in Luke 4, verses 38 through 41 is this. Jesus Christ has authority like no other, as he is the power over all creation, both heaven and earth. Both heaven and earth. That he is simply not just a power for spiritual things, like some would like to attest to you. Oh, that's religious stuff. That's all spiritual but this is the real world. Oh, you believe in a spaghetti monster. That's good if it helps you get through the day. But this is the real world. God doesn't have any play here. What is being articulated in this text is the simple fact that Christ is the authority over both heaven and earth. And Luke includes both of them to make sure that you realize that. 
that even illness and fever doesn't stop him from being able to do what he does. So let's get started in our text this morning. Number one, number one, prayer to power to praise. Prayer to power to praise. This comes from verses 38 and 39. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Don't tell me that prayer doesn't work. There are people now who are experiencing tremendous things that you should be praying for on her behalf. And what did Jesus do? He stood over here and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. They prayed on her behalf. She receives the blessing of the power of Christ because they prayed on her behalf. They believed what they heard and what they saw and said, okay, can you fix this? They didn't just question it. They said, okay, if, we, if you can deliver demons, you surely can deliver a fever. So their faith was amplified by what they heard about the reality that he is the fulfillment of the Lord's favor do you remember what that whole year of Jubilee is? It's the relief of debt. It's setting things right again. Getting rid of the junk and the stuff that way people are reestablished back to how they were supposed to be. So they heard that, saw what Christ did to the demon. I was like, okay, if you're that, if you're the fulfillment, can you help with this? And he does. He does. And the word that is used there by Luke, the term rebuked, is the exact same word, Greek word, that was used in the situation of the rebuking of the demon. That his authority that was over that demon in that time is the same authority that he has over the illnesses and the afflictions and the suffering of the people. That it's not divorced from it. That you are not left here by yourself to deal with earthly things. And the only hope that you have is, oh, maybe one day I'll get into heaven. That's about all I can hope for. I'm getting saved just so I can get to heaven because this place is a hell hole. And I don't know how to survive it. God at least has provided me a way to escape this death so that way I can go be in heaven one day. No, you have hope here. Now. Christ is not the authority just of the spiritual things. He's the authority over all creation and the authority even over the natural things. So you can find hope, redemption, cleansing, and healing right here, right now. He is the authority over both heaven and earth. So they appealed to Jesus for Simon's mother-in-law on her behalf. They stated what we sang this morning. Christ has regarded our helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. You and I were helpless. We were going to experience death. We're going to. And as we'll see later in Psalm 90, the psalmist realizes this. So we're in the midst of a helpless state. What was shown in that moment is the evidence of the power of God produced through the faith of His Word. 
The disciples, the disciples heard and saw what had happened, went to Jesus by faith and said, you could do this. And he goes and does it. Now, does that mean that Jesus is going to do whatever you say? No. That just means you have the one who has the authority to make it happen. That one exists to have the power over, na over nature and over creation because he created it. That he can overcome creation, overcome those boundaries, regardless of what was available at that time, even now. What was shown in that moment is the evidence of the power of God produced through the faith of his word. He has the power over creation and not just the spiritual world. Now, I want to talk about this for just a moment. I want to talk about this for just a moment because these are the types of things I've been hearing recently. These are the types of things I've been hearing recently that are a test from those who don't believe to the Christians. This is some of the things that they say. We don't need God to heal us. We have medicine now. Listening to a recent lecture on AI, sentience, and consciousness, I know, nerd. I was listening to a lecture. One of the argument points from the other side was this. Death is simply a technicality. We don't die because we sin and God said that we're going to die as a punishment for our sin. We die because it's a technicality that we haven't discovered yet. Once we figure it out, we don't have to worry about death anymore. What hubris humanity has. We scale the Tower of Babel and say, God, I'm God now. This death is simply a technicality. We always die of a technicality. Something goes wrong with our body and we try to fix it. We don't need God to heal us. We have medicine now. We place a lot of faith on that system, don't we? I'm going to talk about something kind of personal right now. There is a young boy right now in Memphis, Tennessee, that is going through a third round of chemo and treatment right now. He got delivered from leukemia by St. Jude. He was healed and doing fine. He went through the full treatment, the full thing. He was doing fine as a 13-year-old boy, but then it came back. That wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to work out this way, but hey, hey, we got, we got things we could fix this. Bone marrow transplant, more chemo. Things were going well. He got the bone marrow transplant, and he got the whole thing, and he went home, and things were going and looking all right. Then one day he went to a regular appointment. They're like, something looks a little off. He is back in Memphis, Confirmed with another relapse. He has been failed by the system. I'm not blaming St. Jude because we have a child sitting here right now who is a blessing of that, that group, of those people. But God was the one who provided the healing for his body. We just provided the tools, apparently. <laughs> but he's back there a third time. He has been failed by that system multiple times. So where is he to turn now? Where is his family supposed to turn now? There's only so much medicine that they can give him before they say, we don't know what else to do. So do we need healing by God or do we have medicine? Because we can think up all the clever things we want. 
but death still comes to our door. So now we're sitting, and this is what we should be appealing to them on their stead. That God will be glorified in the midst of this system because St. Jude has failed him. The medical system has failed him. And there is nothing left. So we should be praying for clay on his behalf that this healing that comes to his body is being glorified by nobody else. Nobody else. Because St. Jude didn't work. So Christ be glorified in this situation. He is a good young Christian boy. So we should be praying for that. So that is one testament, the way we have sit there and said that we don't need God to heal us, we have medicine now. Here's another one. We don't need redemption, we need acceptance. We don't need redemption from sin, we need acceptance of it. It's just who we are. It's just who I am, or who I want to be. You don't, I don't need to be redeemed of anything. I don't need to be cleansed of my sins. I just need to embrace who I am, and you need to accept that. We don't need redemption. We need acceptance. And then I want you to celebrate it. That's where we're at right now. We have appealed for centuries and centuries. Come and be cleansed of Christ. Come and be forgiven your sins. Come to have your shame removed from you. Well, I don't want it removed. It's just who I am. I want to celebrate it. No shame. Celebration. We don't need prayer in the Bible. We have psychology and philosophy. We don't need prayer in the Bible. We have psychology and philosophy. We are the masters of the mind and the heart now. We define our nature and determine the hearts of men. We do. That's that biting of that tree all over again. We know good and evil now. And for some reason, we finish the, finish the fruit. We'll just double down on it. We don't need the Bible and prayer. We have psychology and philosophy. Jesus is just a crutch for people who are scared to die. I've heard that one a lot. You're a weak person because you're just scared to die. Everybody dies. Everything dies. So you're just trying to find some way of being okay with it. I'm going to read to you some words from one of the wisest men who ever lived who came to this same realization that death is imminent and he didn't know where else to turn. This is from Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Listen to what he has to say. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's realizing the whole world, like, oh, like this thing works side by side. There may be justice and wickedness are side by side, and they're always together. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon has come to the conclusion that we and beasts are the same. And this is where he's going with this argument. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. He's like, we die and so do they. So what advantage do we have? All go to one place, 
All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the, into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Who can bring me to see what will be after him? He closes this whole segment saying, I've realized this, but who's going to bring me to show me that there's something else? Because obviously this is all I see. Justice and wickedness, righteousness, they all go to the same. Beasts die and go to the ground, man dies and go to the ground. But who's going to show me elsewhere? I'll tell you, Solomon, Christ can show you. He also says in his own letter that eternity is written upon the hearts of men. So our hearts beckon towards that eternity. That's why that question exists. He knows he goes to the dust, but what else is there? Within me there is eternity, but who can show me? Christ can. Christ can. And it is out of that gratitude that the mother-in-law serves. That reality that that fever could have taken her. And she would have been gone. But Christ saw fit to be glorified in that moment and healed her of that high fever. And what does she do? She immediately gets up and starts serving them. Same way the leper returns and says, I'm an unworthy servant to receive such a thing. So she serves them. Now I want to take a moment to showcase a story about a commander named Naaman in 2 Kings 5. This idea of wanting to receive the power of being healed of affliction outside of the belief in the faith and the word. Which is why we appeal to things like medicine and psychology and philosophy. 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. This is an enemy nation, by the way. They've been beaten up on Israel for a while. This commander was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Who had given Syria the victory? The Lord did. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Unclean man, unclean skin. Continuing on. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. We're talking about a servant girl who was plucked from her land and placed in there. And she says this to Naaman. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. The servant girl who was plucked from her land tells Naaman's wife how this commander can get healed. She testifies to the reality of the power of God. She's a slave herself. And yet she tells and gives witness to this situation. So this is what happens. So Naaman went and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That's a lot of money. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, 
Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, could you imagine the gall of this letter? The king of Syria, who's been conquering and beating up on Israel, sends a letter to the, uh, the king of Israel and says, Hey, here's this feller here. He's sick, and you guys can cure him. Wait a second. So how do you think the king of Israel responded? Well, just as you thought he would. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sins word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know what? That there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman is seeking after to be cured of his leprosy. Elisha says, wait, we can do this, but there's a reason that this is going to get done. That the word of the Lord stands here. And that his declaration is the power and the authority. Not anything else. Naaman's going to learn this lesson. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the uh, door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought we would surely come out to me, that you would come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So he thought this prophet was going to come out to Naaman and do some weird magical stuff and that he was going to get cured. Listen to Naaman's response. And this is what we do all the time when we hear of the reality and the authority of God. Listen to what he says. Are not Abana and Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He's like, our rivers are better than yours. If I simply just needed to wash it off in the river, can't I just do that at home? Why do I have to listen to you and go wash where you tell me to wash? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was mad. Okay, I'm not going to get what I want. Grr. But a servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. Now that word clean there is wholeness. Is wholeness. It's not just about removing the leper from your skin, dude. This is much more powerful than simply dipping in a river. Let's continue on. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, which is where Jesus was baptized, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The reality and the power of the authority of the word are met one in one. Naaman spoke. I'm not sorry, Naaman. Elisha spoke the word of God to Naaman. Naaman had to receive it, believe it, by faith go do it, and receive the power in it. The power is the confirmation of the faith that you place in the word. When Christ says, go and do, you say, okay, and then his power is made manifest in those going and doing. Our obedience confirms the reality of the word and authority that Christ has. 
When we go and do as he says and we see miraculous things happen, we go, of course, he said to go do it. I'm an unworthy servant to even be here or to receive this or to even see it. But I got to by faith. I listened to what he said and I went and believed and it happened. I went and believed and it happened. Naaman was standing there. He desired the power divorced from the faith and the word spoken to him. He first desired the power divorced of the word. He was told what to do and was like, no, if it's all about dipping in rivers, I got better rivers than this. So he wanted to receive the power without receiving the word. But it was in the midst of receiving the word that the power came. Power experienced through the faith in the word. It's a testament to his doing. So whenever the disciples pleaded to Jesus over the mother-in-law on her behalf, it was both by what they heard and what they saw, and the power of her healing produced gratitude and praise. Whenever we see a work of God in our life by faith, it produces in us nothing but gratitude and praise because we did not deserve it. There's nothing else that we can do. We did nothing. We simply appealed to the Lord and said, hey, I need this to happen. Can this happen? And when it does, oh my word, it worked. Things happened. So the power experienced through the faith in the word. Number two, praise to proclamation. Praise to proclamation. We get this from verse 40. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Uh, the news spread fairly quickly. Click, quickly? Quickly. It spread fast that this even happened. And once they heard it, everybody came out to it. It was like, really? This is it? Oh, this is sweet. All right. I'm gonna, and they all came. And what did Jesus do? He was faithful Powerful and authoritative, he laid hands on them. Now, notice something. There's a difference between what happened to the demon and what Jesus is doing when it comes to healing people. Jesus speaks to the demon, and it flees. Jesus, when he heals people, touches them. One has authority, the other has care. His hands would be the marks of what he endured to secure you but it's also the same hands by which you are cared for. He places his hands on them to heal them, rather than just saying, get out, or fever be gone, or get up and walk. He does that several other times. But this particular text showcases a difference. Luke is a showing us the care that Christ had in the midst of that moment. That there came a multitude of people who were afflicted and suffering and downcast. And he could have just spoke one word and they all would have been fixed. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. But he chose to place his hands on them to heal them. So there is no confusing where this was coming from. And we're going to see this here in a moment. I want us to read... Oh, I'm sorry... Trials we experience in this life as a beacon of hope to those who are afflicted. Had not the mother-in-law been with high fever in that moment, in that place, and in that town with those specific disciples, the other people who came seeking healing would not have known. 
Those other people who were delivered of their blindness or the various illnesses would not have been delivered had that not happened in that moment. Had her fever not been there, others would not have been affected. They would still be in the midst of their own affliction. Not delivered. But she had a fever in the midst of that moment. Christ was glorified in the midst of that moment. And that just spread like a wildfire. And all their people had hope to be delivered as well. Our trials that we experience in this life is a beacon of those, a beacon of hope to those who are afflicted. It may suck while we're in the midst of it, but whenever Christ delivers us from something like that, others who also experience the same thing look and say, look what Christ did in that life. I know to whom I can go to. I assure you, everything that you experience in your life, if you were an addict for years, and you've been delivered from it, now addicts have a hope. Because Christ delivered you from it. If you've been afflicted in any other way, and you have been torn down, beaten up, and your own hometown says, no, there's no way that you're a Christian, because I know you. Your change in your life is going to be a beacon of hope to those who are in the midst of that very same suffering and affliction. This is where we get from the psalmist, Psalm 90. Psalm 90. The psalmist in the midst of this psalm, as he's writing, it realizes that we are all going to die. And he doesn't know where to place his hope. But we're going to see something beautiful between these two Psalms 90 and 91. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains brought forth, and ev- or, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O child, children of man. So where is he going with this? He's saying God's eternal, and I'm not. God's everlasting. God has always been God. But I'm going to die and return to the dust. So where's the psalmist going with this? For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood, which he did. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is the psalmist saying? You do not have many days. God does. You do not. We need to know to realize our finality. So that way we gain wisdom in knowing that every single day that we live is simply a mercy we have. Which is why he asked all those questions beforehand. Who could even consider your vengeance and wrath? 
You have placed our sin before you. We should not even be standing right now. So let us get wisdom and realize this, that we have a heart of wisdom by numbering our days. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. He has changed gears. He has realized his fate. He has realized his ending, and he has changed gears. He's saying, you know what? If my days are few, satisfy me right now in those days. Satisfy me now in those days. But how? Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants. How are we going to be satisfied in the midst of this life? The revelation of his power and his work and your glorious power to their children. I want to see it. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalmist has come to the end of himself. He's like, I know I'm going to die. I know that this life, it stinks. It's 70, maybe 80 years, and it's full of toil and trouble. So what hope do I have? Where is eternity found? It's not me, but God. So where am I supposed to place my hope? Where am I supposed to place my hope? Psalm 90 makes us realize this, that to teach us the number of our days and be satisfied in your glorious power. Now, the same psalmist who wrote Psalm 90 now writes Psalm 91. Now listen to his words. Because he's come to realization. So that way there isn't an end. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague can come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. This is where the Satan, just as a side note, uses this text to try to uh, tempt Jesus. Oh, throw yourself off. He's, he's going to guard you. It's not the purpose of this text. We'll continue. Verse 12. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble, and I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him. And show him what? My salvation. The hope that the psalmist has in Psalm 91. The reason he can say that pestilence or weapon or anything else won't befall him. Because what can death do? I have secured eternity. 
My dwelling place is at the Lord. So if this tent gets burned up, oh well. There's hope there. The psalmist realizes that his end is not an end. That if he only place himself in the dwelling place of the Lord, that he has security for eternity. That there is nothing that's going to happen to his life in this life that's going to deter him. Which is why he can say no pestilence will befall you. It may kill your body, but it won't kill you if your dwelling place is in the Lord. We're all going to the dust. 70, maybe 80 years if we're strong. I'm hoping to make it to even 70. But the reality is, is the only hope that we have in this life is the one who can secure us. The dwelling place of the Lord. And where is Jesus taking you and I when we die? What does he go to prepare a place of? He goes to prepare a place for you and me. The dwelling place for all of eternity. The psalmist realized this long ago, that eternity is only found in God. And I must make my dwelling place there with him. But guess what, Christian? Christ has made his dwelling place with you. So no illness, no war can befall you. They may be able to take your dust. That's all they're going to get. So what does it matter? But there's a reality, though. There's a reality that remains, that we do endure suffering, that we do endure this life and its toils and its troubles, as the psalmist says. And we see this displayed in John 11. I want to show you what it is that Christ, how it is that Christ's engaged to the sufferings of his people. The troubles that we experience and the toils that we experience. What does Christ do about it? Let's go to John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So right out the get-go, Mary, who had been forgiven her sins, that she had, out of her gratitude, anointed Jesus... She was completely overcome with gratitude for the forgiveness of her sins, that Christ had redeemed her and cleansed her. Her brother is sick. This is a disciple we're talking about. Her brother is sick, and they send word to Jesus saying, Hey, the disciple, the one you love, is ill. What's Jesus do? But when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Wait a second. It does not lead to death. What happened to Lazarus? I'm sure you guys know the story. So what does he mean it's not going to end in death? Because he obviously does. So continuing on. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait. Wait a second. What did he do? Jesus... You love this person. You love Lazarus. He's sick. We need you to come and fix this. He stays two days longer where he was at. After saying, or after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. So he stays there. 
This is the next scene. So he goes and he falls asleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. He's simply saying, the disciples are saying, look, if he's just sleeping, bro, he's going to wake up. He'll be fine. We don't need to go. This is what Jesus says. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he'd taken rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Wait a second. Didn't you say that this illness wouldn't lead in death? And you know what you're telling us? He died? And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What? Is that some of you this morning? It feels like Jesus is not there. You're going through some stuff. You feel like he's not there. Seems like he's just very far. Let's continue on. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus and his disciples go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So they were like, hey, if Lazarus dies, we're going to die too. Whatever Jesus has got going on, what an appalling thing to say. That the twin was like, yeah, let's go die too. Ridiculous. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning her brother. Concerning her brother. So when, Mary, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Mary's a little upset. The one who had been given repentance of her sins, cleansed of her sins, is a little upset at Jesus right now. So whenever Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she goes, Mary says, I'm staying right here. We do that. When things don't go our way, when things happen in our lives, we get a little upset. But I want you to see how Jesus interacts with Mary. This is going to... So Mary remained in the house. Continuing on. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They know. They believe. They have faith. They're like, oh yeah, you're the guy. You would have just delivered him from his illness and he would have been just fine if you would have been here. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her again, your brother will rise again. And this is what she says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She has faith. The hope that it's going to be the end. She immediately says, I know that, Jesus. I know that he's going to rise again. I know that we're going to be resurrected in you. But he continues on. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She asked him outright, or he asked her outright. But Jesus moves further. Let's continue on. Verse 28. 
When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she had heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when, Jesus, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same thing. Now she's saying, as infants, she sees upset. She's upset. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And shortest verse in all the Bible with some of the biggest meaning, Jesus wept. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, wept. Why? Why? Because Lazarus died? No. But because of the, the uh, impact that this life had on his disciples. This impact and suffering that it has on your life. It causes you suffering and pain and anguish. The reality that this world is filled with trouble and toil. And he knows what happens to you. He knows that it's all for his glory. But it still doesn't overlook the fact that it causes you and I pain. So he doesn't, he's not cold and calculated and says, you know what? I'm using your affliction to make things better in this world. What a cold thing to say to somebody. When somebody just gets diagnosed with something or something happens like a car accident, takes the life of somebody, for, it's so wicked and cold to sit there and say, God's going to use this for his glory. Of course he is. But it still doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Jesus wept. He knows the impact it has on your life. He knows. And he experiences it and he feels it. He wept. Why? Because of how it impacted those who he loved. This toil that you experience in this life, he knows. But he also knows and weeps and grieves with you. He's not cold to say that I'm using this for my glory, divorced from you. I don't care what you feel or think. No. It hurts him because he knows it's for his glory and for the purpose of showcasing his power and authority. But how it affects you, it matters to him. Jesus wept. And this is why, verse 45 and 46, check this out. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed and you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of this. The people standing around, 
that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus died so that way others can see the affliction and believe. To see the power of God right before their eyes and believe. And so he cries out to the Father because of the people standing around that they may believe. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Let him go. I want you to realize something. Christ is in the midst of your affliction. A good shepherd walks through the valley of the shadow of death with you. He will carry you through it. He knows your pain. He knows what it feels like. He knows that this is your end, but he is the only hope that you have in this life. Not just eternal life and resurrection in the dead, but your only hope in this life, that the affliction that you feel right now. Why? So that your testimony declares the authority and truth of his word. The glory of God made manifest on this world who doesn't even believe there's a God. Whenever you can walk out and say, this is what happened to me. That's when the unbelieving world goes, what? Nah, that can't be true. Yeah, it's called a miracle, bro. Medicine didn't fix this. Philosophy didn't fix this. Sorry, I went a little long, so I'm just going to have to skip the last portion. But number three is that he is the authority over heaven and earth. And here's two texts I would like you to, to write down if you're taking notes to read. Romans 8, 18 through 23, and Revelations 21, 1 through 8. Let's just go ahead and read Revelations 21, 1 through 8. I just want you to see something about Jesus, and, we'll, and then we'll close. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, both. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What was Psalm, the psalmist writing in Psalm 91? Where is the hope for eternal life? The dwelling place of God. And now, in the new heaven and new earth, God makes his dwelling place with man to be secured for all eternity. Now listen how he describes the effect that it has on us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be there with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Is there anything in there that says demon possession or demon oppression? The things that he speaks about are your experiences, your tears, your death, your affliction, the things that happen to you in this life right here, right now. That's what's getting wiped away. So in the midst of this declaration of the new heavens and new earth, this is how the Lord chooses to reveal it to people. That the very things that you are toiled by and troubled by in this life, 
are gone. Are gone. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he will be seated on his throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he has said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. To tell us die. It is done. Once and for all. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You get to drink of this as much as you want. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you notice something there? Is there any other mention of demons or anything in there? No, this is all human affliction. It's human sin. The very thing that causes your toil and trouble, gone. And it's going to be dealt with. So in closing, there's three things I want us to realize from this text. Boy, man, I should have split this up into two. There was so much to say in this small text. Number one, the power of God produced in your trials is God's glory and your good as it builds on steadfast faith. You receive the word of the Lord, you experience his power, and your faith is built up. You perceive his glory in the midst of his authority. Number two, suffering for the sake of the sinner to the glory of God. Had not that mother-in-law been sick in that moment, others would have been, had no hope in their affliction. But once they heard what Christ had done to her, they came running because hope now existed. Number three, Christ has been given all authority in heaven and in earth as he will redeem all of creation to make his dwelling place with us. To make his dwelling place with us. That dwelling place, the only place we have hope for a security and eternal life, he will make it with us. He has secured you and dwells with you now. But at the end of time, whenever he makes all things new, you will be there. And you will have to feel none of this affliction or trouble or toil anymore. No more tears. No more death, no more mourning, no more pain. That is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, that he is the authority both in heaven and on earth. Now I want to encourage you this in closing, that Christ is the way maker. He not only has made salvation available for your soul, but he also provides salve to the suffering. He has not only provided you a way to be secured in Him in eternity by believing on the gospel, to receive Him, be cleansed of your sins, and be reconciled back to God for eternity, but He has given you a hope in this life right here, right now, that you have a place to go in the midst of your affliction. You could be delivered of it, so that way you could declare of His power and glory to all, or He will carry you and walk you through as a good shepherd to the other side. You will either be secured for eternity... And dwell with him where you don't have to experience any more affliction. Or he will carry you through the affliction so that way the glory of God is made manifest and others can look upon and say, now I have hope. First Peter declares such a thing. First Peter chapter 4, you should read it. He is the way maker. He has made a way for you to be forgiven your sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. He is also 
the way maker by which he miraculous things can come about. He's the only one who overcomes creation for the sake of you and the blessing and benefit of you. He is the way maker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good father. You are a providing father. You are a father who weeps with us because you know what it is that sin has done to us. That we have been subjected to futility in this life because we sinned. And that you have allowed us 70 to 80 years, though it be hard and though it may be troublesome and toil, you have given us time that we can be redeemed. That death is not sure. That you can ensure that our forgiveness in Christ and eternity is found in him. We experience and toil in this life that we may be taught how to count our days. That we may gain wisdom. Or we could say, show me your salvation. So Lord, show us your salvation. Show us your glory. That our hearts may be full. That we are secured and know that whether it is that you deliver us from our affliction or you carry us into glory, that we have a dwelling place in you no matter what. That we have a hope in you no matter what because you are the only authority over heaven and over earth. You are the way maker. May we approach you because you are that authority. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.